This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good. You can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time but you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Mark Whitehead from Houston, Texas. Uh, Mark, how are you doing today? Good, good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And Mark, you kind of have a unique uh, area. First of all, you practice law in a different area than what a lot of us uh, are practicing in. And on top of that, you also coach lawyers. Uh, So tell me a little bit about what you do. Well, in terms of our our law practice, uh, we're a five-lawyer firm. We specialize in in representing uh, disabled workers and veterans on disability benefit claims, basically disability insurance, veterans disability, social security disability. Um, My other business is that uh, I coach lawyers on uh, practice management um, and marketing areas. Well, how did you, let's, let's talk a little bit about your background. So uh, first of all, how did you get into the disability side? Well, it's, Sort of a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Um, Basically, I was approached by a disbarred lawyer who uh, was looking to handle Social Security disability claims. So he started shopping himself to PI lawyers, which in the former lifetime, I was a straight up PI lawyer. Um, And one of the unique things about Social Security disability is you don't have to be a licensed attorney to practice it. So he came shopping around looking for referrals. And for a while, I I used him. And then all of a sudden, I said, why can't I just do this myself? And we started a Social Security disability section. um, And I learned that uh, I actually enjoyed that area of law. And um, from there, it expanded into disability insurance and veterans disability. And I think probably in about 2008, um, uh, after a bunch of battles with tort reform and uh, just uh, wanting to make a shift in my life. We just went strictly uh, disability law and gave up the uh, personal injury part of our practice. And so what is your, you know, your five-star golden case in a disability practice? So the best case um, usually are doctors or dentists um, um, on disability insurance claims. Uh, so you'll have a, a doctor or dentist You know, they perform procedures, surgery, um, you know, uh, dental dental exercises, and all of a sudden they'll have something wrong, a neurological problem. Um, It it could be something as simple as a blown disc in their neck, and all of a sudden they can't practice uh, what they used to do. I mean, would you want a surgeon that that is hand-shook, or would you want a dentist who who, tried to fill a tooth who who couldn't hold hold a drill steady? So... Um, 
And what we have found is that those types of uh, uh, um, doctors frequently have disability insurance policies, things like Unum and Hartford and Cigna and, and companies like that. And of course, insurance companies are notorious for not wanting to pay. Um, so those are sort of our, our best, our most lucrative clients. Um, but, you know, uh, um, we represent veterans on veterans disability cases and um, you can see veterans that have disability claims that go back years and have retroactive benefits that may go back 20 years. Those are, can be fairly lucrative as, as well. Um, and we have our bread and butter social security disability claims, which um, not lucrative on an individual basis, but it is more of a volume practice and, and you can really get some economies of scale in that type of practice. Yeah, we actually looked at my firm maybe 10 years ago at doing social security disability and uh, determined it wasn't right for us. Uh, and part of it is like that economy of scale. I mean, your, your fee is capped out uh, right. at a certain level. Uh, it's not super high. Uh, I guess it's probably not that much less than what someone doing a lot of soft tissue auto crash cases would be making. Uh, and it seems like there was some, some real lessons to be learned on case selection we would have had to learn the hard way. Yeah, you really have to be selective about the cases you take. And yeah, you're, you're capped at $6,000 on a fee. Um, the reality is, is that if you're doing your job correctly and winning cases quickly, um, you're actually your average fee is more in the two to three thousand dollar range. So you really do have to get some good economies of scale working um, on a practice like that. Um, but I will say it's it's an enjoyable practice, and anybody who really you know wants to look at it, I've, I've coached people up on how to start disability practices. Um, um, I tell my lawyers if you hadn't been hugged by your client this week, then you're not doing your job because when you walk out of a hearing and an old lady gets her benefits and she gets on. Um, you get her on Medicare. Um, it's really a life-changing event. And uh, we have some of our most loyal clients are Social Security cases because we've really changed their lives. I've had people tell me that I'm really missing out on the, on the income stream or a service stream for my cl PI clients because a lot of them after their PI case is over probably could apply. Uh, what do you think about that? Do PI lawyers be looking for these to, if they're not going to do them themselves, at least send them out? Well, yeah, you should always be looking for the disability case within your PI uh, um, world um, because um, ultimately what happens is if you get them on Social Security disability, they're going to qualify for Medicare at some point in the future. Um, and a lot of people have continuing medical issues um, into the future. So, you know, great, you got them a PI settlement now, but what about five years now? What about 10 years from now? Um, so, I, you know... Um, most of our referrals come from other PI lawyers, um, and we give referral fees on them um, when we can. They're never going to be big cases, um, but you should always, if you really want to do a good job for your client, always be on the lookout for that um, because it's not just about the check you get them now. It's what about what's happened in five or ten years. And so, what is it we should be looking for then when we're trying? So, we have a client where you know we're working on their case or we're resolving their case. What is it we need to be looking for to see, hey, maybe this person also has a disability case? Well, generally speaking, on most disability programs, I mean, it really means you can't go back to work. Um, and for Social Security disability purposes, there's a 12-month minimum requirement. So in other words, somebody that's going to be out of work for at least 12 months um, you know, or longer. That's, that's sort of the minimum you're looking at. There's no, there's no short-term disability program within the government. Um, it, it, 
it has to be long-term and that's gonna be defined as out of work for 12 months or more. So basically you're looking for somebody that has a permanent, um, a permanent disability, a permanent um, um, injury that, that they're not gonna be able to go back to work on. Now, one thing it seems to me, if you're gonna do, let's say you call the social security practice your bread and butter practice, if you, know, you wanna make enough money to pay your people and then still have money left for you, uh, and you're not going to do all the work yourself. You have to learn how to run a business that will be efficient in running those cases and still give clients, you know, good service throughout. So they hug you at the end instead of cursing you at the end uh, and right. then the results. What did you do to learn to do that? You know, it's kind of funny. So uh, probably the first I've been in practice for 27 years now and probably for the first 15 years or so of my practice, uh, I think I did what a lot of lawyers do. Um, you know, I was at the time I was trying a lot of PI cases, um, you know, and you would get some verdicts and all, you would have a lot of money and then three months down the road, you'd be broke again. Yeah. Um, and it just kind of went up and down in that, that boom or bust type of cycle that, uh, I think a lot of PI lawyers are, are familiar with. And I never really applied good, solid business principles to the practice of law, um, and it was it was it was more out of ignorance than anything else. I just honestly didn't have time to think about it. Um, um, and then I kind of had an epiphany um, in the, um, or I, as I call it, a midlife crisis. I had a midlife crisis uh, back in the early two thousands, um, and a lot of stuff was going on. Tort reform was going on. I was I was thinking that there had to be a better way to do this. Um, and that's when I got involved with a, a coaching organization called Atticus. Um, and I've been a student of Atticus now for God, 12, 15 years, um, to the point now that uh, I've now been trained up to be a coach with Atticus. And what Atticus does is it really, uh, um, uh, trains lawyers on business fundamentals and applying business fundamentals to the practice of law. Um, skills like um, time management, uh, leadership, um, hiring and staffing, um, money, cash flow, um, financial planning, um, and of course, marketing. Um, uh, I, uh, lawyers always have to be marketing. Um, but, uh, you know, once I started applying a lot of these concepts into, into my practice, um, I started stepping back and trying to figure out the, the practice should serve me as the owner of the practice. I shouldn't be serving the practice. Um, that is I, the hardest mindset adjustment to make as a lawyer, by the way. It really is. I mean, you need to build a practice that serves you and your lifestyle and you and, and your family. Um, and the first thing you have to understand is that, um, you know, you have a duty to be profitable. Not only do you have a duty to be profitable to yourself, in your family, you have a duty to your client. I mean, think about this. Profitable firms, they hire the best staff. They hire the best experts. They're able to put the time into individual cases to do the best work. Um, they don't settle cases short of true value because they're in a cash flow crunch. So, you know, it's it, profitability is not just about yourself. It's about actually putting your client first. And if you if you're profitable, you can be the best lawyer for your client. And I think once you start thinking about it in that mindset um, and say, I've really got to run a profitable business first so I can do a good job for my client, I think it, ch it changes your whole perspective. 
Absolutely. So what then, I guess, working with that Atticus, what are the, some of the concrete things you did within your own firm uh, to make it run more like an efficient business? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to, you have to get off the wheel and you have to uh, get a grasp of your time and how you actually spend your time versus what you, how you think you spend your time. Um, and, and you have to be able to, um, you know, there's sort of a, a mis, uh, oxymoron out there, you know, time management. You can't manage time. You can only manage yourself. So you have to learn to manage yourself in the way you focus and the way you spend your time so you can be productive. Um, a lot of lawyers come in and just sit down at their computer in the morning and open up their inbox and they, they let their inbox control their day, um, uh, you know, their email. Um, and really all you're doing is you're just putting out fire, fires every day and you're just responding to other people. Um, you know, there's lots of books been written on the subject, but really, um, you know, it's about focus management. It's about, um, instead of living in your inbox, you should live in your calendar. You should figure out what your priorities are, what you need to be doing, what's the highest and best use of your time. And then literally block out. I block out hours uh, on my calendar um, throughout the week on my personal calendar, not my firm calendar, but on my personal calendar. And I block out chunks um, throughout the week. I'm going to do spend an hour with my door closed doing this. And I'm going to tomorrow, I'm going to spend an hour doing just this um, and really being able to focus um, your productivity. That's, that's the, really the first thing that every lawyer needs to learn how to do. Um, as a matter of fact, I wrote an article on the topic uh, for Trial Magazine for AJ a couple of years ago. So if anybody wants a copy, let me know and I'll be happy to email it to you. Great. I found one of the biggest struggles in that is that I would find that I would know that I need to work on something that's the better use of my time. But it would be like a comfort in a time of stress to work on something that someone else could do, something like responding to emails, drafting discovery, uh, reviewing documents, uh, even taking a deposition someone else could take as well as me because I was comfortable doing that. And, you know, it's, it is uncomfortable sometimes to stretch and work on new things and it takes more focus and more effort. And so it's easy. And I've actually found myself falling back into this during this COVID-19 thing. It's easier to go back to being reactive as a psychological comfort than it is to you know, push yourself and go into things you need to be doing and then learning to trust others to do those things that they can do just as well. What have you done to kind of get past that? One, have you ever experienced that? Oh, every day. Friday, I did it. <laughs> I mean, I backslide all the time. Um, what you said, though, was sort of the key. You, you need to, to learn to delegate um, and you need to develop systems and processes and procedures within your firm um, and train your staff so you can delegate these things because um, you can't do everything. Um, you know, I used to insist that I did all the initial consultations in our firm and that would just take up a tremendous amount of time. And then once I um, sat down and I just, I simply made a checklist. I said, these are, this is a checklist of everything that I want to see happen in an initial consultation. And I sat and just trained um, one of my newer attorneys on how to do it. And quite frankly, she did it better than I did because for her, it was new and exciting. Um, and she did a better job at it than I did. Um, and that, that was just a thing I had to let that go. 
Um, and then I started looking at other things in my practice. What are the other things that I'm doing that I could train somebody else to do? Um, and you just start knocking off these things. And once you start getting rid of the things that you really don't need to do, therefore you can spend your time on the highest, pro- the highest priority things within your firm, things that really do require your attention. Um, so I think that's a big problem with a lot of lawyers. We, we, by our our nature, because we're all highly trained individuals, we're sort of control freaks and we kind of have to get past that control issue that we all have and and realize that there are other people that can do this just as well as you can. I think the, the patience and the commitment of training is another big issue because like one thing where I've done backsliding is, you know, so I'll think, I think that I've trained a new lawyer to go to an initial client meeting. And, you know, we're 99% attorney referral. So, you know, we'll do an initial client meeting, someone new will come in, and then I'll get a, a, a phone call for the referring lawyer. So-and-so said this or said that, and why would they say that? And, you know, sometimes the temptation is rather than saying, okay, let me fix my process, let me fix my training, let me go retrain my lawyers on that issue. I just said, well, I'll just do it myself, just so I can calm down the referring lawyer. Like, you know, well, can you just do these yourself from now on? It's like, well, let me, you know, you're just taking the time and letting me fix it and convincing the referrer that, hey, you really don't want me spending all my time doing initial client meetings. You want me spending my time doing big strategic thinking, deep dives into cases, and also making sure the firm's running right. Because uh, that's where I'm going to add value to your cases. I don't add value in my meeting people. I add value in strategic ideas and trials and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And and, in marketing the firm, I mean, you're sort of the face of the firm. Um, Just by way of example. So, you know, an attorney will refer me a case. Um, I will send it off to my person to do the screener and the screener will come back to me and say, yes, we accepted that case because it met criteria. Or she'll come back and say, yeah, it's sort of an iffy case, but uh, it's your call because it's your referral source. What do you want to do? And I'll, I'll tell her what to do. But then it's incumbent because I've managed my time correctly and I have some free time, then I get to take the opportunity to call that referral source back and say, hey, yes, we took your case. Thank you so much. Hey, let's go have lunch. Let's go play golf, whatever. And I build that relationship because that's really a better use of my time. Or the flip is if we can't take the case, you know, I need to be the one calling that referral source and saying, hey, appreciate the referral, but we really couldn't take it because of these reasons. But you know, just, just to make sure that the referral source is still happy with our service, even though we didn't take the referral. That's a better use of my time than sitting there and for an hour, hour and a half um, screening that client. So that's, that's what I mean by, you know, what is the highest and best use of your time versus what you can delegate to someone else. Now, how do you learn to, you know, I went back and forth over the years between, you know, trying to do it all myself and then what they call delegation by abdication, where I just tell someone to do it and don't give them enough guidance and don't give them enough instruction and then getting frustrated and then either micromanaging or trying to take it on myself. And it's been real hard to find that balance. What What's some things that have worked for you in that area to, to get it done by other people, that, but then also done right? So there's a, a great book out there called The Checklist Manifesto. And it's a... Uh, uh, I forget the name of the doctor who wrote it, but, uh, you know, people who, when lives are on their, on the line, um, doctors, airline pilots, um, and so forth, they all live by checklists. Um, and so we have created checklists for almost everything that we do, even the most simple processes, um, that our people do. 
And we live by these checklists because what a checklist allows you to do, it'll, it makes sure that you have consistency um, throughout your firm, regardless of who's performing the task. And that's what you want. You want consistency and you want quality. So um, we, we have these checklists and we have these flow charts, um, sort of if-then scenarios. If a client says this, well, you need to ask this series of questions. If a client says that, then you need to ask this series of questions. Um, and it's all set up by flow charts and checklists. Um, and that way I know um, that, um, number one, my people have the authority to take the case without my approval because I just slowed the process down. Why do, you, why do you need my approval on everything? You only need me to make the tough calls, the calls that it's where it's not clear. Um, so when they do bring the tough calls to me, I know that they've asked all the questions that I want because I've given them a, a checklist and, and they know to follow that checklist. This is a real in the weeds question, but how do you do your flow charts? Do you have a software program you use or? Well, so I use a yellow pad and a pen. Okay. Now I have some really smart people um, that work for me that then take what I draft out and they convert it um, that we used to do it on PowerPoint. Um, there's now a new program out that integrates with our CRM and I'm blanking on what the name of that program is, but we've now started using a, a specific, specific, uh, flow charting process program, um, out there, which I've never actually seen how it works. I just see the results okay. I have smarter people that figure this out for me, That's awesome. <laughs> but I still, when I initially started, I simply have my, my old yellow legal pad and a pen and just start writing it out. You said CRM. Is that customer relationship management software? Yes. Um, we use uh, uh, a system called Litify, okay. uh, which is based off of a Salesforce platform. Salesforce is, is probably one of the largest uh, CRM platforms in the world. It's used, um, hasn't been used much in the legal um, field, but it's used by industries across the world, quite frankly. Um, and Litify is just a company that's taken... Um, the Salesforce platform and, and converted it to um, um, the legal field. So that's the system that we've used for about two years. That's the one that Morgan and Morgan uses, right? Yes, that's that's uh, Morgan and Morgan's um, brainchild. Um, John Morgan is uh, an owner. Um, they use it in in their firm, um, or at least he he buys up so many firms that uh, I remember him telling the story that um, that. That's that's the backbone, but a lot of these branch offices that he's bought in different towns, they haven't converted over yet. So uh, um, probably a little bit far afield from what we're here to talk about today. No, it's no, just, uh, it's like an interesting those. conversation. Yeah, I like John Morgan, uh, but yeah, uh, smart guy. If it runs a multi-hundred lawyer law firm, it's got to be pretty stout. Yes. And uh, yeah, I was wondering what what case management we've been struggling. Uh, I've had the case, same case management system for 20 years, and they developed a cloud product that we were going to convert to a couple weeks ago, and uh, they couldn't get they couldn't get to work right, uh, and mm -hmm. so we're not converting. And so we're uh, we're looking around in the case management software field right now. We may or may not stick with who we've had the last 20 years. So I always like to hear what other people have to say about what they're using. Are you happy with Litify or? Um, yeah, I'm very happy with it. Um, it the amount of detail that you can um, um, 
dive down into and your workflows and your work process is pretty amazing and the dashboards that you can create so you can actually see what's going on in your firm. Um, you know, it may not be for everybody um, because it, uh, it um, quite frankly, it, you need to have a certain volume of cases to, to, to make the features worthwhile to you. But, you know, we have several thousand cases um, oh, wow. going on at any one time. So, yeah, we have to, I mean, I got to stay on top of it. So I need, I need help to do it. I mean, if you're working in a small practice where you maybe have, you know, 50 cases or less, then it's probably a little bit overkill um, given the cost of the program. But, um, um, yeah, but if you have a volume practice, you need something that will really give you some, some deep dive data. We have eight lawyers with less than 200 cases. So the kind of things I'm tracking, it's kind of funny what, what I've tracked over the years is, you know, how many, how many times are lawyers spending three or more hours doing focused work on one case? Mm -hmm. uh, that's the kind of thing I'm tracking now, uh, which is right. different. Uh, and, and answering discovery or responding to things doesn't count. It's three mm -hmm. or four hours offensively thinking about your case, not responding what the other side does. Uh, you know, different practices need different, uh, different types of metrics. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now back to the show. So uh, you have an awesome newsletter. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is a brainchild that we rolled around our head for three years before we actually kicked it off about, uh, I guess it's now about two and a half years old. It's called the successful barrister. Um, and, um, one of our marketing strategies, our chief marketing strategy, is is, is basically working um, um, our lawyer list. We have a list of about 4,000 lawyers that uh, I've done work with over the years, whether they were defense counsel or, or um, you know, within the trial lawyer organization or people I went to law school with. Just, I've always collected names over the years and over 27 years, you know, we're now up to about 4,000 lawyers that I've actually, I actually have some contact with. Um, so the, the, the byline for the successful barrister are management, marketing, and life skills that probably won't get you disbarred, which kind of gives you a sense of what the newsletter is about. It's meant to be snarky. It's meant to be funny. Um, we use caricatures um, throughout it. Um, and what we do is, is we basically write articles about marketing and management um, and life skills within a law firm. You know, if I did a newsletter about disability law to other lawyers, I mean, it'd get trashed. Nobody would want to read it. It wouldn't be, you know, um, it would bore people to death. So our, our goal is to have actually people pay attention to it. You know, so we put in cartoons, we have pithy little quotes, we, um, um, we summarize um, a lot of books that we read um, that we think other lawyers should be reading. So you don't have to read the whole thing. You can just read our summary. 
Um, but that's the whole goal behind it is to give something that lawyers would actually find useful as opposed to, gee, this is the latest summary of the latest disability case that came out from the Fifth Circuit, which nobody, unless you do what I do, nobody would give a crap about that. So I don't want to bore people. I want something that people find interesting. Um, so we really don't talk about anything we do other than on the very back page. Um, we kind of have a, a little display ad um, about what we do. And then um, I, we, I have um, about six books that I've published. So we'll feature one of our books on the front page um, as well. But other than that, it's not about us. It's about things that can help other lawyers. Um, and that's kind of the goal behind it. And does it convert? So what, you know, what we have found is that about 35% of our business comes directly from other lawyers. Um, and, you know, what we do, you're not going to send me 10 or 20 cases a year. Um, you might send me one case every year, maybe once every other year. If you're lucky, you might send me two cases a year. So I, I know that there's not a lot of frequency out there. So what we have to do is we have to have a lot of breath. So, um, you know, that's why we mail to 4,000 attorneys. Um, so establishing what's your return on investment, um, you have to kind of look at it in, in the big picture. You can't look at it in one month and say, Hey, we got X number of cases off this newsletter. I can tell you over the last year, you know, we've gotten about three to 400 cases from other lawyers. Um, so how do I get these cases from these other lawyers? Well, there's a way there has to be some way to connect with these. So, um, when you look at the big macro picture and look at your numbers at the end of the year, um, uh, we think it is very successful. Um, it's also funny. I go to like an AAJ convention and everybody, people that I can barely remember walk up to me like, Hey, you're the newsletter guy. So, I mean, we know it, we know it works. Um, you know, how, how to put an ROI to it. It's, it's sometimes a little difficult. Um, and sometimes you just have to live with the fact that, um, um, you're just you're going by anecdotal evidence, but we think it works pretty well. I mean, obviously, three or four hundred cases a year that we're signing up from the lawyers, you know, they got to get to us somehow. Yeah, no, yours. I, I love your newsletter. I mean, I, re, I actually read it uh, and then I pass it around uh, the office as opposed to most other things. You know, what people just saying things on bragging or giving something technical on an area law where I don't practice. I, I just crash them. But I'm wondering if yours works better because most of the people you send to don't know as many people that are in your field and are and are not practicing your field because we sent out I mean we had 1600 people on our list lawyers and we did a beautiful little magazine I don't know if you ever got it got off the record yeah I did mm -hmm. I did it for a couple of years and uh you know we weren't we couldn't show that it led to any new referrals and the, the way we did it is we were spending a lot of money on it um and we spent a lot of money on different things. It didn't, and we were, the firm was doing great. We were getting great cases in, but most of our cases came from a small number of lawyers. And when I called the new ones, just to check, most of the new ones were not on our magazine list before they, uh, before they came in. And what we found is at least in the area of large personal injury claims, you know, trucking death case, even like a case with a back surgery, you know, it was really personal contact and and 
recommendations from other lawyers that had worked with us that got us. Almost all of it was, I talked to so-and-so that you had done a case with. And so we kind of switched to even more, you know, we have the podcast that keeps our name out there. I speak a lot. Uh, I'm working on getting a trial guides book finished. Uh, but the bigger thing is we said, okay, 80% of our income comes from these seven law firms. What are we doing to make them feel super special? And we kind of rebudgeted uh, that money from news. I don't know if that was a mistake or not, but it just, we just mm-hmm. couldn't show with the amount of work we were putting into it uh, for our practice. So I wonder what the difference difference was between our experiences. Well, I think I can point to it pretty quickly is that we are a volume practice. Um, you know, uh, our average fee on a social security case is maybe a couple of thousand, maybe on an insurance case, you know, maybe seven to 10,000, depending. Um, so, um, we're shooting for volume. Um, and we're shooting at a really, really wide, wide target because of the, the frequency is, is for any one individual attorney is, is really not there. So it makes sense from that perspective. Uh, for us, it's, it's almost strictly a numbers game. So I have to, I have to shoot at a very wide target. Yeah. You, on the other hand, you have much more of a specialty um, niche practice, um, at least in terms of it's, it's not a volume practice. It's, it's right. more high end. So you have to approach that from a different perspective because you're not looking so much um, at a broad numbers game. Um, you're looking for quality. So, um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a different marketing vehicle right there. And I think you've kind of nailed it on the head. Um, you know, yours is more about one-on-one relationships. This is, again, back to time management. You need to, to manage your time because what you, your highest and best use of your time is going to be establishing those personal one-on-one relationships with these key people and these key firms. And you've got to have time to do it. You know, you can't, you can't say blow off a lunch because, oh, I got a deposition next week and uh, I, I, I can't I have to cancel this lunch with this referral source. No, you need to send that deposition out to some associate and you need to make that lunch because that's the highest and best use of your time. Um, so yeah, but it's just different strategies. There, there's a totally different mindset between a volume type practice like I have and, and more of a, what I call a high end, um, a high end, lower volume practice, like what you've got. And I've, and I started off with a volume practice. I've, I've made the switch over the years and it's a, it's a scary switch to make. Uh, I'll be honest with you. And it's not a switch that, uh, you know, it won't work for everybody because I've known people that I've known a lot of people say, so well, I'm only going to do like four or five cases and I, they're just going to be really good cases. And then, you know, they, they're not in a position to do it. They lose one or one gets continued and they go broke. Um, and so yeah, it's, it's finding that, it, that balance and, and be getting in a cash situation where you can afford to, to do this switch. Right. The, the, the advantage of a volume practice is the, your, your cash flow is pretty steady, you know, um, and I don't lose sleep when I lose a case. I mean, it, I don't like losing a case and I feel bad for the client when we lose a case, but it doesn't hurt me financially. Um, whereas if you're in a, uh, a situation like yours, um, yeah, I mean, losing, if, if you lose three in a row, that's a problem. Um, but you have a higher upside, <laughs> yeah. quite frankly. You have a higher upside than I do, but that's okay. I mean, it, it goes back to you need to build the practice that serves your lifestyle and what makes you feel comfortable. And we're kind of like we have eight lawyers, so we're kind of in the middle. Where you know, I'm still trying to apply some of the volume things as far as getting other people to do work, and me only working the highest and best uses. But then, you know, when you're blessed with uh, 
the ability to have these great cases that bring in big fees, it's really hard to work on the other stuff. Uh, and then also that you don't want to be seen as competing with your referrals. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I went into the, let's say I started putting TV ads on, for example, for car wrecks. Well, some of my advertising firms just wouldn't send me business anymore because I'd be, why are they going to help a competitor? Exactly. So it's all exactly. looking at your particular market. What are some other things you've done that, that uh, you said you, you've done some talks, you gave a good talk, I think, at AHA on marketing. Besides the newsletter, what are some other things you've done that seem to work? So um, we have, uh, I've written three different books, um, mm-hmm. one for each practice area. Um, and we give those away freely. Um, we give them the, away to the lawyers. We give them away to our clients. Uh, we'll give them to like uh, veterans organizations, our VA book. We send a case out to these veterans organizations. So we distribute these things far and wide. And, and they're also available for free download from our website um, if people just want to download the PDF version of it. Um, and that's worked well for years. Um, then one thing, uh, Brainstorm, I, I really had goes back to, you know, what's our best client? Our, our best clients are doctors and dentists, quite frankly. So we started thinking about that. So what I did is I took my disability insurance book and I, I sort of repurposed it. And, um, you know, a lot of it has examples. So what I did is I changed the examples out in the case and I changed them out from, you know, a regular worker. I changed them out to doctors and, and, um, and another one for dentists. And I basically wrote a specialty book, uh, you know, a disabled doctor's guide and a disabled dentist's guide. Um, and we created those specialty books, which are really the same book. Just We just switched the examples out and changed some of the wording. And we have started distributing those at uh, doctor's conventions and at dental conventions and, and, and pushing them into that industry. And like I said, those are, those are what we call our high-end cases. I mean, uh, they're, they're not as high-end as, as probably some of yours are, but for us, that's what our high-end market is. Well, I've seen uh, some seven-figure results on some of those cases, though, from I've heard of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're they're uh, they're probably not going to generate a seven figure fee, um, but you might be able to generate a, a good solid six figure fee on a case like that. Well, that that's still not bad. No, it's not bad. It's not bad. Um, so, um, but that's been one of the things that we have moved into is that sort of that specialty marketing to doctors and dentists, just because we know those are our highest end clients. Um. Our biggest um, um, marketing effort, although, has always been um, our website. Um, you know, that's one of the thing, nice things about having a niche. I mean, we have a very specialized niche. So our website is, is hyper-focused just on disability. Um, and um, it generates a ton of leads for us. Now, obviously, when you generate a ton of leads, you have to have a good screening process. Um so um, I think my number one thing that we have done that really works for us is that we've established a separate intake team. We have removed um, the lawyers um, and the paralegals um, when we've removed them from our intake process and intake system. And we've hired a separate intake team and they're, they're trained and they're specialized and that's all they do is they're on the phone every day talking to, in our case, we might have about 1,500 leads that come through our system in a month. That's a lot of people to talk to. And so, number one, you don't want to bog your lawyers and your paralegals down with having to, to look at that, that much information. Um, secondly, what I found is, is that when they get busy, 
when they used to be the final um, decision makers on whether we accepted a case or not, when they got busy, they started turning down good cases because they were just busy. Um, so we removed them from that process um, and let them focus on what they do best, which is process cases and win cases. So we have an eight person intake team. Um, that's all they do is screen those cases every day. And they have the authority to accept cases um, that meet criteria. And then cases that don't meet criteria, um, what we call the, the no-go bucket, they have the authority to reject those. Of course, there's a manager that reviews that. And then only those cases that are in the middle move up the chain um, to um, probably, and usually it's, it's the marketing manager um, that makes that decision on the tough calls. And on the ones she really can't make a decision on, then she comes to me on it. So, you know, we might sift through 1,200 to 1,500 leads a month, um, you know, and from that we might sign up about 100 of those a month um, as actual cases, which means we're rejecting a lot of cases. Um, but, um, you know, that's our goal is we want to accept only the best cases of the type of cases that we do. And you just, you know, there's the old saying, you got to mine a lot of coal to find some diamonds. So, um, but there's no way that that would work if we had our attorneys and our paralegals involved in that process, they would just, there's no way they would have the time to do that. You know, I've learned the same lesson. And, and part of it is the frustration is on our, we've learned the more information you gather on the front end, the better the case, one, the better decision you make on the, on the take or no take, but two, the better the case develops. Uh, and so one of the reasons, even though we have less volume than you do, that I went to people just doing intakes and nothing else is that the paralegal and the lawyer are always worried about the next step and you know, they're supposed to get all this stuff from a client and supposed to have this big, long initial meeting with the client, but they have three deadlines that week. They tend to you know, get what they can from the client and, well, I'll go get it later. I'll go get it later. And they won't get it until there's an actual deadline. And you end up, uh, one, creating additional stress, but two, not making the kind of decisions you would make it had you had all the information. A lot of times, like, well, had I known this, I would have decided differently on something. Uh, so we switched to that, and then we've had to do a stricter go, no-go without my involvement, because what I would find is a tough case would come in, and I would be like, I can find a way to do that case. I can do that, and it's not the best use of my time. Yes, I can do a bunch of briefing and a bunch of legal work and get some kind of recovery for the client, uh, but one, it's not a good use of my time, and two, what I learned is when you take on a really tough case and you do all this work and you get a recovery that for the case is really good, but for the injury is not, the client's still not happy. The client compares their recovery to a recovery on a good case. And the referring lawyer remembers the check they got and the size of the check. And so if they refer, let's say a slam dunk, rear end, collision 18 wheeler case to one lawyer, and then a really, really tough case where let's say maybe their client rear ended the 18 wheeler and you're trying to put some fault, you've got contribute issues to another lawyer, They'll say, well, lawyer one got me a bigger fee. They must be the bigger lawyer, even though you can rationalize all of that with them when it comes down to the next case. In fact, they even might say, well, lawyer two must be desperate and must not be a great lawyer because he took case two. Uh, and so when I found when I get myself out of it uh, and then my, I always want to help everybody too. So if I do the initial client meetings, I end up taking cases that aren't the best uses of our time because I want to help somebody. And so I found that, you know, getting written criteria and giving other people the authority to stick to them and then making that their only job has been a, a, a huge game changer for our practice. Right. So I have a, a 
sort of a similar take on that. I, I used to have the criteria that if a case, if a client had a worthy case, we should take it. Uh, and it was sort of the hero mindset that, uh, you know, I needed to be the hero for these people. And then what I've learned over time is, you know, there's for every person out there that has a legitimate case, there's a perfect lawyer for that client, but I may not be the perfect lawyer for that specific client. So we like, we stopped taking certain types of cases that we knew were winnable, um, but they just didn't fit our system. They didn't fit our criteria. Um, and, I, and I had to get past the ego, like, hey, I can win this case. Well, yeah, I can win this case. But, you know, there's another lawyer right down the street that's a good friend of mine. And, and for us, what might be a case that doesn't meet our criteria, that fits exactly into his criteria. And so what I've, I've learned and what I've, I've told my people, they're like, why are we not taking these cases? I'm like, Jim, down the street. We'll do a hell of a job with this case. Let's let's get this case to Jim and let him do a hell of a job. He will appreciate the referral. The client will love him, and it it um, you know it just fits the the case fits with Jim. Just because we can win it doesn't mean we should take it. Yeah, and one thing I did I I started tracking my time a little bit, and I realized I was spending a really disproportionate amount of my time in expenses on cases uh, that I was, you know, again, trying to be the hero and trying to make something out of a tough case. And, you know, I usually end up having to cut my fee at the end because of the fact that we, we need to get to be a hero. You got to get some money in your client's pocket. And those still tough cases you can get a recovery, but you're still not, you know, usually getting full value because there were problems with the case to start with. And what uh, working with a guy named Rodney Jew, who's a litigation consultant out in Napa. Mm hmm. He really turned my mind around when he's like, okay, all the time you're working on that case, you're not working on someone else's case where you could have really, really made a difference in someone's life. And, you know, if you have the opportunity to, to have cases where you can spend your time and make a huge difference, then when you take on that one that takes you away from those, you know, that's not fair to those clients. That really, it, it took away the some of the feelings of guilt and selfishness that I felt like you know, why I have to say yes to cases because I'm not worthy of saying no to them or I owe it to people or I'm a bad person if I say no. And also the realization, there's lots of lawyers out there. There's somebody that, you know, 10, there's a lot of cases I'll tell my referring lawyer, like 10 years ago, I would have loved that case. But for me in the position where I am right now, if I take this case, then these other five cases I'm working on with you, I'm not going to have time to work right. And so I think this is a better case for someone else who's coming up the ranks, a great experience for them. They'll do a better job than I will. Uh, you know, so it's just a time to pass on that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how do you manage time then to, between your, your coaching, I guess, which must be fun, uh, and uh, your managing the practice? Well, I mean, honestly, um, uh, and this is pre-COVID-19 pandemic, uh, um, I have gotten to the point where I only work about um, – I don't know, maybe five to 10 cases at a time. Um, um, I guess sort of maybe the higher end cases or cases that I just find interesting. Um, and I spend pretty much 90% of my time either managing or marketing the firm or um, doing the coaching part of it. Um, basically, uh, I, I've, we've built a, a system and we've built a great team. Um, you know, that's the other part of this. Um, unless you hire the right people to run your systems, uh, no system is going to run itself. 
Um, so we've hired a, a great team. I have brought right now, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of about 35 employees. Um, we've actually, even during the COVID pandemic, we've hired two more people in the last week. So um, um, we, we have plans and we're expanding um, <laughs> regardless of what the short term looks like. Um, but um, you have to have good people to, to run your systems. And given the fact that I think I really have an outstanding team, that allows me to pick and choose where I want to spend my time. I'm not forced to spend my time in any one particular area um, unless I choose to do so. And if I choose to do this week to, to go out on my sailboat, I, I have the flexibility to do that because I've built a great team and a great system that allows me to do that. Um, you know, there will be times where I uh, last last at the end of last year, I spent two solid months doing nothing but working um, to revamp our intake processes, our intake systems. Um, but I had that luxury of making that choice because everything else on the other side of the firm was running smoothly and didn't really require my time. And I think that's the key to, to when I say building a lifestyle law firm. Um, you know, people ask me, when am I going to retire? I'm like, why would I ever retire? I'm having too much fun. Um, you know, I like building a law firm. I like running a law firm. But there are times when I don't want to to build my law firm or run my law firm and I want to go do something else. Um, or there are times I want to focus in particular areas. So that's, that's sort of the key um, is you have to have your time management um, set and you have to have your systems down and you have to have the right people um, in the right seats on the right bus to run, run your systems. And once you have all that in place, um, then your time kind of becomes your own. You can focus on areas where you want to focus at any given any given point in the day or any given point in the week or month. How do you find the right people? I tell you what, that's not easy. Um, and I will tell you right now is the time to find the right people. There are a lot of good quality people that have lost their jobs um, because of the pandemic. Um, and as a matter of fact, while we just hired two, um, we had two positions that had been open for six months and we could not find the right person um, to fit um, into those positions. And all of a sudden, and that's the problem when you have full employment, you know, at three or 4% employment, that's full employment. And, and it's hard to find good people. It is very hard to get hired by our law firm. Um, we do multiple personality tests. We do multiple interviews. We do skills testing. We do background checks. Um, my marketing director, before I hired her, she jokes, she was interviewed six times before we finally hired her. Um, so it is really hard to get hired um, onto Mark Whitehead and Associates. We are very, very picky. And I would much rather let a position go vacant and maybe hire a temp from a temp agency to cover that desk for a while than to hire a permanent employee that just didn't fit all of our quality criteria, everything that we're looking for. So, you know, hire slow, fire fast. That's, you've heard that a million times. I've heard um, I've trouble doing it. Yeah, it's, it's a mindset and you've got to have the mindset that I'm, you know, probably the best thing I ever heard. The quality of your life is directly related to the quality of the people you let in your front door, which means you have to have quality employees accepting quality clients. Okay. And if you, um, if you start skimping on either one of those two areas, the quality of your life is going to, uh, decrease drastically, at least in the short run. 
So you just have to be very picky about it. Um, honestly, we um, I'm a big believer in using temp agencies as a stopgap because it when you get a temp agency, and I know you're going to pay them twice the normal hourly rate on an employee, and they're not going to be that great probably, but it at least is somewhat productive. Um, and it sort of relieves you of the temptation to hire, um, to cut corners in your hiring process. So that's kind of how we do it. Um, my temp agency bill last year was pretty high, but um, it allows me to take the time to fill the seats on the bus with the right people. And as far as you said, you do personality tests? Yes. So we do two personality tests. Uh, one is called the DISC assessment. That's D-I-S-C. There's different companies out there that will do that for you. Atticus does that for clients. And it really uh, kind of grades people on, on four different axes of, of, of their personality. Um, it's more of a management tool than should I hire or should I not hire this person? Um, but it gives you a sense of, of how they are on a day-to-day basis in terms of um, how to communicate with them, how to motivate them. So that we do that with every member in our firm, and that's kept in a central location where everybody can see everybody else's scores. Um, and we talk about that frequently throughout our um, uh, when we have our staff meetings. Um, the other test we use is called the hiring MRI, um, and uh, Jay Henderson's firm uh, um, is the one who does that testing. Now that is more of a bit of a pass fail. Um, um, you can do poorly on that test um, or you can do really well on that test. Um, it's not cheap. It's about a little over $200 to administer that test. Bad um, a lot more than that though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we will, we will burn through four or five of those to hire in any one position. So I'm spending about a thousand dollars in testing, um, um, to, to hire any one position. Um, I will tell you that um, when I've hired against that test, I've always paid for it. When the test said, don't hire this person and I hired them anyway, um, I've always uh, lived to regret it. Now, occasionally there have people though the test said that they were hireable and I hired them and then they still turned out to be not so great. Um, so it, it's nothing's perfect. It just improves your percentages. Um, but uh, I do believe in that test, um, and um, uh, we sp- <laughs> we spend a lot of money on that. Would that um, you could give us a link to? We can put in the show notes so that if people wanted to use that. Or is that absolutely, I can I can send you the link to that. So this is a challenging time to to practice. I don't know about you. We're all working remotely. Uh, so how is how have you adapted to the you know stay in place pandemic? Uh, situation that we're all facing. Yeah, well, I mean, fortunately, um, we had already um, developed our systems to where we could work remotely. Now, primarily, it was so the lawyers could work remotely because they're traveling around going to hearings and such. So um, um, we put a lot of our, our, our CRM is in the cloud. And, and um, um, so we were sort of the lawyers were sort of used to working remotely. Now, we've had to uh, adapt and, and, and get everybody else working remotely as well. So, yes, I've had to go out and buy a bunch of laptops and, and get everybody sort of uh, working on that. But, but I actually view it as sort of a good pressure test. 
Um, you know, if your firm can work under these types of uh, constraints and these types of pressures, um, then, then you know you've got your systems down. And then, and then where you don't have your systems down, they're going to really be exposed in, in, in a time like this. So, yeah, we're all working remotely. Um, fortunately, our CRM is up in the clouds. Um, um, I, I had never used Zoom before, quite frankly, and uh, now we're Zooming every day. Um, so we have morning um, uh, huddles where we kick off the day where we're all together. The different sections are together on Zoom just to kind of get everybody a sense of normalcy that you can see everybody um, and get everybody assigned on their tasks every day. Um, you know, for us, nothing has changed business-wise. Um, um, the business is not going away. Um, there's still disabled people out there. We're actually hiring. We are, uh, have hired two people um, in the last week. Um, so, like I said, there, there are good people that are out there available now that, that probably weren't out there two or three months ago. Um, so if you have the opportunity to scoop up some good people right now, now's the time to do it. Um, you know, we, what I learned honestly, is what we learned in 2008. Um, in 2008, we went through a financial crisis. And what we learned is that the business didn't go away. Um, it just got deferred a little bit. Yeah, our revenues went down a little bit for the first quarter um, after, after everything went to hell. But it came back the next year. And that's kind of what I'm anticipating here as well. I mean, the business is not going to go away. It, your, your money, your revenue may get deferred slightly for the next three or four months. And hopefully, um, you know, you can weather that storm, whether through your own money or through the, uh, the CARES Act. Um, but I think there's a lot of opportunity out there as well. You know, where there's chaos, there's opportunity. So you need to be looking for the opportunity. Um, you need to be adaptable um, and, and you just um, need to have a good mindset that, that we'll get through it um, and we'll come out better on the other side. And so how about, you know, you're adding new employees. Uh, we're actually looking at possibly adding one or two people in the next few weeks, or at least starting start the process of looking for one or two people in the last few weeks. And one of the things we're struggling with is how do you train and onboard somebody remotely? Well, that goes back to the checklist. Um, fortunately, we have a series of checklists we've developed for training and onboarding uh, new hires uh, based on that particular position. So generally when we hire somebody, um, there's about two weeks worth of stuff that they need to um, read through or videos that they need to watch or one-on-one um, -on -one training sessions that they need to, to go through before we sort of release them anyway. And then for different, some positions, it's even longer than that. So um, yeah, we're sort of having to adapt those checklists to doing things online, uh, obviously doing a lot of Zoom training, um, um, you know, getting, getting these people up and productive. And, and you just sort of have to temper your expectations a little bit for somebody that I might have expected to get trained up in two to three or four weeks, I'm probably now going to take, you know, four to six weeks to get them sort of moving in the right direction. And you just have to understand that and you have to be patient with that process. Um, but, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, the, honestly, there's nothing you can't do remotely um, that you couldn't do in person. Um, it's just your mindset. You think you can't do it, but you really can if you really put your mind to it. Well, good. Well, that was my thought. I'm uh, one one position. I'm gonna have my manager take me through tomorrow and show me how to do it, and then uh, compare what she had written to make sure that's fully showing how to do it, and then coming up with a training plan. Uh, you know, day one we'll do this. Day two we'll do this. So 
Right. Just a good, a good checklist and a good timeline. And this is how we're going to cover it. And this is how we're going to do it. And this is, this is our process and just put it down on a piece of paper and follow it. Well, speaking of, you know, checklists and templates and stuff, you've actually put together a marketing template. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So, um, uh, as part of a, um, a presentation that I've given the numerous groups, uh, AAJ and, um, um, uh, I think the last one before that was El Paso Trial Lawyers, and then um, to, I've given it to Pilma on multiple times, and I'm supposed to do it again this summer if we actually can get together. Um, but I put together uh, a marketing plan and a marketing template, um, basically going over the six basic strategies that we use to market our firm um, and putting that into a written marketing plan with ROIs and, um, 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 you know, the, the primary goal, the sub goals, the timelines and so forth. I put that together in a template form. And uh, what I do with people is I just share it with them um, in a word format because, you know, my template is not going to work specifically for your, for you, or my plan is not going to work in your firm, just like your plan is not going to work in my firm. But if I give you the template in a word document, you know, you can take that and you can borrow the parts that work for you. You can edit out the parts that don't work for you, or you can make suggestions um, I, I frequently have that when I give it out to, to, to people is they'll come back to me with suggestions. Hey, Mark, you didn't think about this. I'm like, hey, that's a good idea. Let me add that to the template. Um, so anyway, this is a document that's been floating around in my world for, you know, about five years. And every year we add on to it and I, I share it freely. All I ask is um, send me send me an email and say, hey, Mark, can you send me the word version of your template? Um, and I'll be happy to do so. Um, if you want to get on my mailing list to get the successful barrister newsletter, I'd be happy to do so. Um, I also, if I can think about it, I have an article on time management that I wrote for trial magazine um, that I'm happy to forward around to people as well. So my goal is to, to kind of share freely everything that I've kind of come up with over the years. I can tell you there's not one original thought in that template, I everything in there I've stolen freely from other people who've been generous with me. So my theory is I want to be generous with everybody else. Um, you know, rising tide floats all boats. So if we can Absolutely. all do better and if we can all run a better practice, um, then you're going to get more referrals. You're going to get more leads. You're going to send some of those leads on my way. I can send some of those leads on your way. And we can we can all run better businesses. Quite frankly, we Absolutely. all need to run better businesses because. Quite frankly, the back of the bar journal with all the bis disbarred lawyers, are those, those are all the lawyers who didn't know how to run a business. Nobody went to law school saying, hey, I'm going to get my law degree and then I'm going to go cheat my client and defraud my client and, and do bad things and get disbarred. Nobody ever said that. What happened is life happened to them and they didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't know how to run a good business. Um, so what I want to do is to help people avoid that and, and establish a practice that serves your life. And I do want to encourage everyone to at least get your newsletter. Like I said, if nothing else, it's entertaining. But there have been discrete things that I've read in your newsletter and we've implemented it at my firm uh, to our profit uh, because you, you have some good ideas in there and you don't charge anything for it. So if anyone else wants to join me and get on your newsletter list, uh, what, what how do they where do they email you? OK, so you just the, the trick is uh, my mother spelled Mark with a C. Um, she's cursed me with that my entire life. So it's Mark at markwhitehead.com, uh, Mark with a C, C on both sides of the at. Believe it or not, I've had to tell lawyers, it's C on both sides of the at. Defense lawyers, only defense lawyers I've had to tell that to. 
Um, but anyway, Mark at markwhitehead.com, Mark with a C. Um, just send me an email and say, hey, Mark, heard you. I'd uh, love to have a Word version of, uh, of your marketing template, be on the newsletter. Um, we'll get you on the list. Mark, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. I could talk to you for hours because uh, I'm really getting a lot out of this, but we kind of have a one-hour limit on our uh, podcast interviews. So thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, right, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on Ratings and Review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners, and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join a private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind the scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at triallawyernation.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.